Just wanted to acknowledge that today is Ron and Amy Mueller's last Sunday with us. They're, uh, his new job will be taking them to Chicago and they'll be moving this week. And we pray God's blessings on you as you travel out to Chicago. And hopefully it'll be a good place for you for the next few years. And thanks for your, your uh, service and ministry to us for the three years that you've been here. So, and speaking of moving, a few years ago, we had a family that moved from Massachusetts, one of our church families, to Florida. And they also moved for the purpose of a new job. And the role that this individual was going to was going to a new company in Florida around Jacksonville. And their role was in their human resources department. And their whole responsibility was focused around what they called secession planning. Now, I, I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, but what that really meant was that, all right, if we take this assistant manager and now make them a manager, where's the new assistant manager coming from? How are we preparing that new person to come along? Or if we take that manager and make them a district manager, where is that new store manager coming from? If we take this team leader and now make them a department leader, where is this? And you see the whole idea. It's, it's getting ready for the next generation of leadership. And we're in a section of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is planning working with the disciples to plan for the next generation of their leadership in the church. We're we're in the latter part of Mark chapter 9, flowing into chapter 10, and I'd love for you to take a Bible and turn with me to that section of the Gospel of Mark. And just just to back that up a little bit, earlier in our journey, we we clearly see when Jesus was teaching around Galilee and certain areas, that the focus of Mark was very much on his public ministry. There's large gatherings of people, and he's teaching, and he's feeding, and he's doing miracles and crowds. But in this latter section, there's still some of that going on, but it's much more of his emphasis is on the conversations, the teaching that Jesus is having with his disciples as they're walking along the road, and the questions that they're asking, and those kinds of things. And last week, Pastor Steve wrapped up with the whole question about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And he talked to them about becoming the servant of all. And that seems to have kind of struck a nerve. And, and we're going we're gonna to move through quite a bit of text again today. What I'm really going to do is give you five sermons and then back up and draw some points out of five different sermons, all right, for us. Because we're trying to move quickly so that when we get to April 21st, which is Easter, we're actually talking about the resurrection, <laughs> right, instead of waiting until like, you know, June to get there. So we're moving fairly quickly, and we're actually going to enter into the last period of Jesus's life as we get into chapter 10. But I want to start today in Mark chapter 9 with a, 30, with a 38th verse, and we're going to make our way all the way through verse um, uh, 13 of, of chapter 10. So, if you would follow along in your Bibles, if you're using one of our Bibles underneath your chair, you're going to find our text today on page 855. If you've brought your own, you've got it, and, and you can uh, find it uh, in the second gospel, the, shorter of the shortest of the four gospels that we have. So let me, again, break down each section as we go, so that... So that we understand what's going on. Because, again, my, my heart every single Sunday is not necessarily to craft the, 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 the most interesting kind of thing, but for you to walk out the door knowing what the Word of God says better than when you came in. Because the power is in the Word. And so I really want you to understand and connect with that. So let me start with verse 38. So John, 
Now, this is a reference to the Apostle John, right? Brother of James, author of the fourth gospel, also of the first, second, and third John. As far as we know from tradition and history, he was the last of the living apostles when he passed away in his 90s. So John says to Jesus, says to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Because he's not one of us. Because he's not following us. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And that's a sharp contrast to what Jesus says in Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, where he says, whoever is not for us is against us, right? And whoever does not gather to us scatters. And here he says, whoever is not against us is for us. There's a little different context, and we'll, we'll get back to that. <clears throat> and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, only time we see that word in the Gospel of Mark, I assure you he will never lose his reward. So let's deal with this little section first. We don't know exactly what prompted John to raise it in this setting. It could be that Mark has taken an experience that happened somewhere else and fits it in here because this is a tremendous point that they need to know. It could be that the whole discussion about the greatest and serving and all that kind of stuff flashed a memory for John, and he said, you know what, remember that time when we were out working in Jesus' name and we saw a guy casting out demons in his name, and, and he wasn't one of us. We didn't know this guy. So we told him, hey, knock it off, right? You know, you're not one of us. Don't be doing that. Don't be using Jesus' name. And, and so he's, he's raising it to Jesus like, is that what we're supposed to do? Right? And you don't know exactly why John told him not to do that anymore. It could be that because of their idea of greatness, it's like, hey, listen, we're the ones who left our families. We left our businesses. We've gone all in on this with Jesus, and nobody is getting any of my glory, right? You know, we're the 12. We're the ones who were with them, and if anybody's going to be doing this kind of stuff and getting the cred that goes with it, it's going to be me. It's going to be us, right? So he's speaking for all the disciples saying, hey, you know what? Nobody else should be doing any of this stuff but us, right? It could be... So that would be a selfish kind of thing. It could be that John was just concerned. You know, this guy, he doesn't really know Jesus. He doesn't really know the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't, you know, that kind of thing. And he's out here doing this stuff. And who knows, maybe he's going to enter some kind of a cancer into this emerging kingdom. So we need to put the kibosh on that so none of that stuff is really kind of happening. And Jesus' reaction is, don't stop him, Right? Don't stop them. Because there's nobody that the Father is going to choose to use to do a miracle that soon after is going to turn out to be somebody who destroys the kingdom, that speaks evil of it. And, and I've got to tell you, this is, this is an incredible point for the disciples to start to get, right? The, probably the greatest danger that was going to strike the church after the day of Pentecost was, it, was man trying to control the spread of the kingdom of God. Let this sink in for a minute. When, when, when 
Peter stood in the te- and declared the message of God, and 3,000 people who were there from all over the world came. If their number one focus was, was quality control, we've got to make sure nothing happens unless we sign off on it, right? You could just see the kingdom implode, right? Because there, it's got to be the, the only way that the kingdom can move forward is if man can manage it. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. And so Jesus is right up front telling the disciples, you know what? If God is in it, it's not often going to turn. It's not quickly going to turn into heresy. Just let God lead and be a part of it. Be a part of the journey. And and I got to tell you, this is a struggle that we continue to see over and over and over again. Let me just give you a few examples just from from a pastoral perspective. I I was aware of a pastor in our region about a decade ago now, maybe a little bit more than that. He got to a place in his church where he said, nobody is going to teach anything in our church unless I write the material myself. Because it's the only way we can be sure that the real, true doctrine is being taught. And you know what happened? That church went Because the guy was, you know, he was so busy, he just couldn't write enough stuff for everybody. So there were fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer until the church isn't there anymore today. Because when man tries to control it, we get man-sized results. You know, and, and you can, other kinds of examples that go into all of that, and you know, you can see some of this idea of not living with the gray with all of our denominations that have emerged, right? And, and Rwanda is not immune to that, you know, and I could tell some stories about related to all that. Just, a, 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 but, but on the flip side, right? You know, a couple of decades ago, one of, the, one of the greatest things that God was doing around the world is that there was a tremendous explosion of the house church in Cuba. Now, Cuba was a communist country, right? Severely controlled, all that kind of stuff. They weren't really all that excited about Christianity getting to gr- grassroots. And yet, the, the, the kingdom started to expand. And one of the outcomes of that was that the church was spreading so fast that you had individuals who had only been believers sometimes for three to six months, and they were pastoring these little house churches. Now, you could get the idea that there's a lot of stuff that they don't know yet, right? And, they, and missiologists had this tremendous concern that all this heresy was going to develop in the life of the church because the guys who were doing the teaching really didn't even know the Bible all that well. They didn't have a systematic theology to build it all around. And you know what? None of that happened because God was in control. Now, I'm not saying that the teaching was necessarily all that great and, or there were places where it could have been a lot deeper and those kinds of things. We've seen that happen in Rwanda as well. And they can get tied up in endless debates whether or not you know, Jesus, baptism should be in the name of Jesus or the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they can chase their tails for hours and that kind of stuff. And there's ways in that need to really learn. But God's hand was on it. And one of the greatest things that we need to learn in this journey, as we get ready for the next, sometimes we can't always control what God's doing. He's always simply asking us to participate in what he's doing. Next section, picking up with verse 42. And this whole section that we're going to read through the end of chapter 9 has to do with the idea of stumbling or downfall. It's what causes our downfall, and it, and it, and it kind of builds the whole section together. But follow along with me in verse 42. Jesus goes on to say, but whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, and little ones there is probably more of a reference, not so much to children, but those who are spiritually vulnerable, still forming spiritually. Whoever 
causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me. It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The place where there's this unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye, if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Everything we do will eventually be tested by God. It will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can you make it salty? And this is, you know, they got salt out of the Dead Sea and it had salt in it, but it had other impurities and the salt actually got washed away. It could still look like salt, but it didn't do the role of salt. So what good is it anymore? He says, he says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. So have this role of being this preservative in the world and among yourselves. And so the whole theme that ties this section together is the idea of downfall, causing other people or causing ourselves to stumble spiritually. And the first thing that Jesus warns is that, you know, you do not want to be the person that derails somebody else's faith. You do not want to be the person who derails somebody else's faith. And, and this is a, 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 a huge word, I think, in, to so many of us. I think sometimes we think, like, hey, you know what, that's their problem. How they react to what I do is their problem, right? And Jesus said, hey, you know, so it's interesting. A little background here, right? The millstone was a, a very large stone that they used. They came in various sizes, but they used it to prepare the harvest. You know, they would grind grain and that kind of stuff with it. Sometimes they, they did it, you know, an individual would push it and they would grind it and go around in a circle. Sometimes they had very large ones that they would use oxen or, or donkeys or others to, to pull it around, and this is what they do. But it was very heavy, right? And so what Jesus, and one of the forms of execution they had in those days is they'd literally just take you out into the ocean or into the Sea of Galilee or to the Dead Sea, and you'd have this rope tied around your neck, and tied to it would be this 75 or 100-pound stone, and then it'd just toss you over, and you'd drown. And it was an instrument of execution. And it's interesting, Jesus says, you're better off to die that way than to have it show up before God and give an explanation for as why you derailed the faith of somebody else. It's interesting, I have a Roman Catholic priest friend of mine who said, you know, one time he used this illustration for all of their families who were showing up late for church with their kids. You know, they were, you know, a certain mass started at 9 or whatever, and they're getting there at 10 past 9, 9.15, and he's like, it's better off for you to have a millstone, you know. But there's a huge word here for us, right? And this, what he's really saying is that we have a responsibility to one another to be spiritual encouragers not derailers. But then he looks at the, the kingdom of ourselves, right? And what he's really calling upon us to be is that, you know, if you're going to be 
the future leaders of the way the kingdom's going, the way you're going to be engaged with that, you have to be ready to make change. If your foot's causing you to stumble, you've got to get rid of it. If your hand is, and he's not being literal here, he's, he's being figurative, but he's talking about the sense of radical adjustment that we need to make to the kingdom of God for it to flourish in our own lives. And the imagery he uses here of hell was actually one that would have been very vivid to the people in the days of Jesus. Um, this imagery of where there's, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is there was an area outside of Jerusalem that in earlier periods of Israelite history, as they engaged in apostasy, they engaged in heresy, they actually worshipped other gods, and there was a place outside of the city where they built an altar, and it's where they, they sacrificed their own children to these pagan gods. And so during one of the major reforms, and I think it was under Josiah, they, they desecrated that site, and what they did is they turned it into the trash dump for the city. They literally just took all their refuse out there, right? All, all, and, they just, and so they just started burning it, right? And, and so you're out there, you, man, you got rot, rotting food and trash and other kinds of stuff. It's all out there. So, you know, the, you, know, you know, the maggots are just having a wonderful time, right? And all the rotten food. And they got the fires going constantly, burning the ashes. You know, there's just enough heat that keeps going. And it was a desecrated spot. It was awful. It was foul smell. Nobody wanted to be around it. And Jesus said, that's what hell's like. And he says, and if, and if you don't want to stumble and find yourself in there, you need to adjust to the kingdom of God. You need to be ready to make huge adjustments. And so this is sometimes related to our habits. It could be to our commitments. It could be to our perspectives. It could be to our attitudes. It could be all kinds of things. There are things that hinder us in our spiritual progression. And when we say, nah, I'm holding on to that. I'm not letting that bitterness go. You know, I'm not letting that hopelessness go. I mean, that's me. I got to hold on to it. It's what defines me, right? Or, or I'm not letting that habit go. You know, that's just way too religious stuff. I'm going to keep doing this or doing that or whatever. You know, it, it, and, it, and it hampers us. Jesus said, you've got to get rid of that stuff. You're going to be ready to adjust and allow the kingdom to move through you. On to the next section. We are moving quickly. Hang with me. I got some points to come back to. Again, the, the hope in, in prayer is for you to understand what it is for of what God is saying to us. And what he's saying is that we not only need to be cautious of the way we can cause others to stumble, but we need to be adjusting to the activity of the Spirit in our lives, removing those things that hold us back so that we can actually be the salt of the earth. In chapter 10, Jesus begins the journey to Jerusalem. He's headed towards that place where he's going to spend the last week of his life and then he's going to die in our place on Good Friday. And as they're making their way there, he heads down to Judea in, in, in the area across from the Jordan. And we pick up in verse 1 with these words. He said, he sent out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And then the crowds converged on him again, right? And he began to teach them, as he usually did. And he began to teach them more. And so some Pharisees approached him and he asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the Pharisees are not nice people when it comes to Jesus. They, they, they are the, the religious elite, right? But when it comes to Jesus, they are not nice people. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Jesus caught up in a culture war about divorce 
in the nation. So there's that everybody right now is excited about Jesus. So we've got to get at least half of them to hate him. So then we have a base to work with from which to destroy him. So what they want to do is they want to get Jesus to take a position on the spiritual culture war of their day, which was their perspective on divorce. And here's, here's where they were, were at. There were two schools of thought that emerged out of the fact that Moses said you could write a certificate of divorce and send your wife away, and you did so if you found something unseemly in her, right? So one school of thought, one rabbinical school said that the only justifiable thing that qualified as unseemly was if your wife committed adultery. So as long as she was faithful to you physically, you were stuck with her forever. That's the way they looked at it. The other group, they said, no, 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 that's not what he means by unseemly thing. Unseemly simply means if you just find something about your wife you don't like anymore, you can just punt her. You know, she doesn't cook the way you thought. That's all right. She doesn't age well. You know, if, if, if she's not, she can't sew your clothes or whatever, you can just get somebody else. So which opinion do you think was more popular with the men? This side or this side, right? You know, and so these guys, they're trying to drag Jesus into the middle of it, right? And so they say, you know, so is it lawful to divorce your wife? Tell us what you think. Which side are you on? You're going to make all these guys mad or you're going to make all the women happy? Which side are you going to do? Right? And they're trying to get him caught up in all of that. So this is what Jesus says to them in response. He said, well, what did Moses command you? Well, he said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and to send her away. But Jesus said he wrote this commandment not so that you could use it to justify divorce, Right? He only wrote this because of the hardness of your heart. And here's what Jesus is, 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 is digging at here, right? In the ancient world, if a man divorced his wife and sent her away, and she didn't have this writ of divorce, right? He basically, a husband, if he sent away his wife, would have sentenced her to a life of destitution. She had no means of getting remarried. It was a patriarchal world. There was no future for her at all. So God's intent had never been for there to be divorce, but if man's sin was going to introduce divorce, he was going to try to be merciful and make it less devastating than it was. And now they have grabbed onto that, and they've turned it around and used it to justify their sin. Sound like us at all? You know, I get grace, I can be forgiven, forget, you know, nobody can, I got the spirit, nobody can tell me what I have. We, can, we have come up with all kinds of reasons. To, and, and so Jesus deals with this, right? He says, God, that wasn't God's goal, that wasn't God's plan. He only did that because your objective to, was to do as little as you could to be pleasing to God. Your heart was hard. And with that, he gave you this. But from the beginning, this has been God's goal. That God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become flesh, one flesh. They are no longer two, but they're one. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into all of the biblical teaching related to the divorce and etc. Suffice it to say that God's intent... And, and man's sin enters in, and God's got solutions for all of that. But, but God's intent was for a man and a woman to come together in a marriage relationship. And that unity, 
that harmony, that connection was to be a great reflection of the unity that the Father and the Son had together. So it's not just surviving under the same roof with your spouse, but it's actually being intimately connected and unified and in harmony and at peace and growing together and working together at the kingdom of Jesus just like the Father and the Son are doing so, that they would be one. So the disciples, you should pick up in verse 10, they get Jesus back in a side room and they're like, can you go over that with us again? Because it sounds like getting married is like a life sentence, right? And, and, and I'm not sure we heard you right, right? So can you go over that again? So Jesus says, all right, all right. So they get in the house, verse 10. Now in the house, the disciples questioned him again about the matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now that, we, we read that, so oh yeah, 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 that makes sense, what? That would have been mind-boggling. You know, that <laughs> Jewish thought in those days, right? This is, again, man twist and stuff, right? The way they looked at it, I could commit adultery towards another man by sleeping with his wife, but if I slept with another woman besides my wife, I didn't actually commit adultery against her, right? So, in other words, so if a man sent his wife away and married somebody else, he didn't actually commit adultery against his own wife. Jesus says, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because you violated what God's goal or purpose was, what God's intent is for that relationship. Verse 12 is also just as radical. Because in Jewish culture, women did not have the right to initiate divorce. Roman world, which was right there with them, yes, women had the right. But in, in the Jewish... But he says, if, you know, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And the and whole spirit there is, what are we doing? Are, 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 we, are we going all in for God's perfect plan for our lives and our relationships? Or are we trying to find the loosest way to somehow be okay with God, yet somehow still getting by? You know, and there's a whole spirit of things that are going in there. We've got to move just quickly. Some people, in verse 13, were bringing little children to him so that he might touch him. But his disciples rebuked them. Imagine if you showed up on a Sunday morning and you started walking across the parking lot with your little kids and they said, hey, get them out of here. We don't want them here. Yeah, they can't earn any more money to give. Get them out of here. You know? That's, so they're bringing Jesus. He's too busy for them. Get those kids out of here. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Right? If we were in a more... I don't even say the word. Anyways, he was just really upset. You know? And he said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Right? Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What, what does that mean, right? Does that mean that we have to be naive or innocent or just not that the, the number one thing I think that stands out, you know, children, first of all, are usually very humble. Not all, but many. Usually children have a, 
low sense of, especially younger children, low sense of kind of like self-consciousness. You know, they're not really worried about their image. You know, you go to the beach this summer, right? You're going to see a lot of two-year-olds running around in their diapers. You're not going to see a lot of 32-year-olds running around in their diapers, right? You know, because we just have a different sense of awareness of what's going on. You know, so there's, there's a sense of they come to God and they don't really worry about how it makes them look, right? They're just excited to be in the presence of Jesus. But the number one characteristic of small children is their dependence on other people. You know, think about a six-month-old or a one-year-old. Besides crying, what can they really do for themselves? It's a phenomenal kind. And, And Jesus said, the number one characteristic of somebody who's embracing the kingdom is someone who is dependent on the kingdom and is willing to lie on it. And this is such an interesting thing for us because we often look at maturity. From a worldly perspective, being mature means to be independent. From a spiritual perspective, being mature means being totally dependent on God. Two radically different things, right? So let me make some points for us about being the leaders, if you will, of this growing kingdom that God really wants from us. Right? How is it that you and I can be the kind of people who welcome the kingdom in such a way that Jesus is ready to pull us into his lap and bless us like he does the little children? Let me just give you four quick points, and I will move very fast here. The first thing we have to do is we just really have to trust that God really is in charge. I guarantee you, Every single one of us has read a passage of Scripture. We know it's something we need to obey. We don't know how it's going to work out, and we hesitate. We need to trust God to be in charge. And, the, and you, could, you know, there, there's, there's all different kind of ways that that happens. But we just, like, like as the church exploded after, after, you know, the day of Pentecost, and it went literally in all kinds of different directions, and, and it's, it's just God's doing it. The disciples are trying to do their part. We need to just let God be in charge and do our part. And, and, and there's some powerful things in there for us related to that. Here's the second truth is you and I really need to ramp up our diligence and not spiritually sabotaging our journey. There are ways in which you and I, we know what we need to do to take next steps from God, and we just don't do it. We trip and stumble, but we're not really ready to get rid of the foot. You know, we, we get distracted, but we're, already not to, we're not ready to gouge out. We need to take seriously the ways in which we undermine our own spiritual journey as we move forward. I could go into lots of... The, the third truth, and, and I think this really speaks out for a lot, and some of this you heard from the teenagers up here today. We need to accept that God expects to use our lives to change the world. We are supposed to be the one who offers the cup of water that extends the kingdom. We are supposed to be the salt that preserves 
the world, right? We're supposed to have that role. Many of us have said, well, you know, that, that's not my role. My job is to show up, be silent, sit in the back. Nobody knows I'm here, not connected, etc. because I'm just not a difference maker. And every time we do that, we shut down the work of the kingdom in our lives because God has called us to be people who engage the kingdom and help spread the kingdom. Here's the last truth. And with this, we'll, we'll, we'll conclude. And this, I want to revamp what I, something I just said before, that, that spiritual maturity is actually being totally dependent upon somebody else. Jesus. What I want to tell you is, I think if you and I are going to be the kind of kingdom disciples that Jesus is trying to prepare in our text, we have to be people who seek freedom by being controlled by somebody else. Does that make sense? I mean, we don't see it that way, do we? Right? To be free means I can do what I want, when I want it, how I want to, etc. That's the way we see freedom. But when you look at it spiritually, being free, being set free by the truth, means that we are now fully under the control of the one who is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a radical change for most of us in our lives. Yet it's really my thrill and my pleasure, pleasure today to be able to say that Jesus really does want to take us into his arms, touch us, and bless us. And my invitation is for all of us to respond to that today, that wonderful gift that God wants to bless us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together for just a minute. God, it has come fast and furious today. Father, I pray that from all the truth that's been shared today, the seeds that get planted in our lives would produce great fruit. And we would be blessed because you've touched us. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.